Bandwidth for this week in photography is brought to you by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This Week in Photography is sponsored by Audible. Go to audiblepodcast.com slash twip for a free downloadable book. This week on the show, is it all right to manipulate your photos using Photoshop? What happens to your photographs when you license them? And Tom Hogarty on DNG. All on This Week in Photography, number 40. Welcome to another edition of This Week in Photography. Scott Bourne, your host, and I am very sorry to report that, again, this week, my co-host, Alex the Lindsay, is playing hooky out somewhere in the East Coast teaching, but we have it on good authority. He is being whisked away by jet uh, and brought back to San Francisco for next week's show. Uh, we do have a special guest today from Adobe, and it's not Fred Johnson. What do you think of that? We're, we're going we're gonna to trick you all. You were expecting me to say Fred Johnson, weren't you? <laughs> it's Tom Hogarty. Uh, we'll bring him in in just a minute, and he's going to talk to us about DNG, the digital negative format that, uh, that Adobe's working on. And uh, to help me with today's show, um, we're, we're going to have a, a very special co-host. Aaron is here, our producer. Instead of being here as our producer, he's here on the panel. Welcome to yes, the show, Aaron. Good to see you. Good to talk to you. This is your debut. Are you nervous? Oh, no, no, no. I've been listening in the background on enough shows, even though I missed the last two weeks for one reason or another. Aaron Mailer's hit the big time, folks. He's on the Twit panel. <laughs> it's, it's the dawning point in his career. Um, Aaron, of course, is one of the geniuses, along with Jeff, who have helped uh, migrate the blog successfully to a new server. So if you're checking out the blog at twipphoto.com, and apparently you all are, we had a million page views this month already. Um, I want to say, uh, you know, thank you, thank you, thank you. And um, these guys, Aaron and Jeff, made it possible. Aaron, I appreciate all your help on that. I'm going to give most of the credit to Jeff on this one, actually. Yeah, he, well, uh, I, know, I know. He worked really hard. He did. <laughs> certainly but did. You got the ball rolling, and then he, he took it home. So we've got a – it was really quite painless in general. We do occasionally have a couple performance issues on the new server. It's hanging here and there. We're working on that. But all the content made it across, which was a big – on my part, because that's six months worth of work. And hundreds and hundreds of posts and thousands and thousands of comments. So anyway, that's done. Twipphoto.com. Check it out. If you're not watching the blog, you're not getting everything the show has to offer because we update that every single day, seven days a week, sometimes more than once a day. Uh, I do want to mention um, that we have our last chance for you to win a Drobo. This week is it. Uh, at the end of this week, we're going to pick a winner. If you link to us from your blog or from your website, simply link to twitphoto.com. We will check our referral logs. We'll just pick one of you at random and you're going to win a free Drobo. And then we're going to keep that going with another prize the next quarter. We'll let you know what that is. Um, so this is your last warning. Be sure to do it. Now let's get to the photography news. Um, this, uh, this first piece of news is uh, actually related to Aperture, which we're going to ask Tom to just close his ears for a minute. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're, we're working with uh, Apple to do the Aperture Nature Photography Workshops, uh, which is a series of workshops over the next year at uh, four national parks. The first one will be at Grand Tetons National Park. There are going to be four pros and four amateurs. And you can't buy your way into this workshop, so don't even think you can buy a ticket. You can only win your way. We're going to have a photo contest. The submissions begin August 15th, 
And uh, you can't buy your way in, but you can win your way in. More than $2,500 worth of prizes. Lynda.com giving away a free year of of uh, lynda.com premium service and think tank photos throwing in a 3360 a free 360 that's hard to say Aaron a free 360 <laughs> photo bag uh, to everybody Drobo a free Drobo you get a free Drobo out of the deal Peach Pit Press is giving $500 worth of photography books and they're also going to help us publish a book of all the images at the end uh, Lens Babies oh my gosh they're giving a free Lens Baby lens to everybody um, who am I forgetting oh Fotrade Fotrade just came on as a sponsor. Free Lifetime Pro membership. That's worth about 500 bucks. Anyway, there's a lot of stuff. Go to ApertureNatureWorkshops.com for all the information. And we're going to talk about that more on TWIP because we're the media sponsor. So it's, it's kind of exciting. Hope that you can come along. Um, let's do a, a quick mention that Nook Silver Effects Pro has been released for both Adobe Photoshop and Apple Aperture. Tom, have you seen this? Have you seen this? No, I haven't had a chance to use it yet. It is stunning. Uh, this is a cool product. I love Nick products. Uh, Color Effects Pro was my favorite for a long time. Been using that on Photoshop. Just moved that as well to Aperture, so now you have your choice. Um, they have this new black and white plugin called Silver Effects Pro. Now, unfortunately, like all Nick products, it's spendy. <laughs> it's uh, $199. But if you're interested in doing black and white conversions, they have a control here that I've never seen in any product. Now, maybe it's going to be in the new Lightroom, and Tom can't tell us that. But uh, th- there's, a, there's a way to control localized contrast in this plugin that I've never seen anywhere else it is brilliant so uh, download the free trial over there at nicksoftware.com and tell me what you think aaron you got an announcement from panasonic here i uh, yes we got the lumix dmc fx 150s apparently been uh, released um dp review has a uh, some decent coverage on it it's um it's kind of has a reputation at the moment as being the highest resolving compact camera on the market. It's uh, almost 15 megapixels. Uh, it's got a new imaging processor in it that uh, Panasonic's called the Venus 4. Uh, it's an f2.8 Leica DC lens. It's the 28 to 100 millimeter equivalent. And uh, apparently th- their approach to uh, manual control of it is it's supposedly simplified manual control. From what I gather, it may just be a shutter speed control. I don't think they get a whole lot deeper than that. Um, and then there's also a new color bracketing function um, that allows, normally with bracketing, you know, it's for shooting three exposures or something. This actually will shoot uh, a color, a monochromatic, and a sepia shot all in the same shot at the single press of a button. I'm not did really DP, sure I see the value in that, but... Did DP Review have any uh, sample photos? Um, I think they did. I think they did. Uh, they my, always have some samples online with the press releases, so... My first thought is a 14.7 megapixel image in a compact is going to be no oh, 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 easy. Yep, I would certainly think so. I certainly think so. I'm looking on here now, too, and I I actually, I don't see really any sample shots available at the moment, just shots of the camera itself. That's kind of like the movie review that doesn't include a movie review clip, (laughs) so let's be worried about that. Um, Anyway, um, you know, 14.7, I think it's getting a little crazy uh, for a compact. You don't need that kind of, uh, you know... Resolution on a compact, 8, 10 megapixels, more than enough. Well, it, it, it is interesting. It's got a Leica lens. Um, that, the, the that's pixel gonna, pitch has to be tiny on that, too, to for, be a CCD yeah. sensor at 14.7. Yeah, I'm going to bet that. I'm going to bet at ISO 101 that thing's noisy. <laughs> it probably is. <laughs> Let's move to PDN Online. They have just posted a gallery and an interview from a dis embedded for a minute Aaron I wrote read this is disembodied <laughs> disembodied I thought about that when I was putting it in the wiki a disembedded Iraq war photographer you want to talk about this 
Um, apparently, this is Zariah Miller, um, and the the link that we'll have in the show notes um, goes through uh, an entry at uh, Rob Galbraith's blog, where I picked this up, and it includes a, a gallery with uh, imagery and I, I believe some music and all behind it too, showing a series of his images from his Iraq War photography. But in this particular situation, um, he took photos of the aftermath of a uh, suicide bomber uh, that apparently included the bodies of U.S. soldiers in it, and uh, he he played by the normal rules and that he didn't release the images until after the next of kin were notified and also uh the angles of the shots the men were not identifiable anyway but um but he was uh, uh he had his uh, embedded status withdrawn uh by the u.s military for for publishing that image which uh, really kind of puts into question you know the whole how much journalistic latitude photographers and reporters really have over there with uh, with the military kind of controlling you know I don't want to say propaganda necessarily, but maybe that's the word in this case. So uh, yeah, the interview is, is rather interesting. He kind of explains his side of the story, and it's pretty thought-provoking. Yeah, it, it is. And um, I, I think there's a lot of interest to balance here. We'll, we'll try to dig deeper into this. Uh, if anybody else has any information, send us an email or leave us a comment on the blog. Let's, uh, let's move on to the site of the week. I'm really sorry that we, uh, we can't get... Ron Brinkman on the show today because um, wasn't this one he liked? Uh, well, actually, this is a, a different one in here called Stuck oh, in Customs. The, the one, uh, uh, well, I'm, I won't name it till next week. We're going to save that for Ron. Okay. <laughs> I, I got a mis- miscommunication. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't know anything about this side. I did not pick this side of the week, folks. So if you hate it, send your hate mail to Aaron. Uh, well, this one actually came through the the Twip Ideas. I've come across it a few times in the past. Uh, a couple of friends of mine have sent me copies of it too. It's called Stuck in Customs, and it's the uh, personal photo blog of uh, a man named Trey Ratcliffe. Uh, it's very heavy on the HDR images, and a lot of his are quite surrealistic. But there's some beautiful work in there, and uh, he's a very accomplished photographer. So he and he gets so many inquiries from people about his style that he's put up a couple of really nice tutorials on there. Uh, one regarding HDR, and uh, another one just kind of photography. Or, or actually texture tutorials because uh, he's, he's big into macro photography and textures so he's done a couple of nice tutorials on there. Another thing I thought was kind of neat was um, he has the entire site under the Creative Commons license so anyone is free to take the images and make use of them manipulate them, experiment with them the only restriction is, and you can do it without permission but the only restriction is you cannot use it for any commercial use without so his permission first so yeah. it's a beautiful site. Uh, good luck to him on enforcing that uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm still waiting for an attorney to tell me they got a case where a Creative Commons license was actually taken to court and proved to be effective. All right, let's look at our Flickr challenge. We are in week two of the color blue. Already lots of photos being posted up there on uh, to Flickr. I do want to remind you that it's our recommendation. You can do whatever you want. Our recommendation, you limit those images to no more than 400 pixels on the longest side since we're not completely sure that Flickr's ability to protect uh, your intended copyrights uh, is uh, going to be prosecuted very far given the lack of attention to their API. We, in fact, are are concerned enough about this that we've uh, found another solution. We're going to August or September, more likely early September, we're going to start doing something really new with this contest. I think you all will like because it's based on your feedback that we're going to do it. We're going to let you vote up the top 10, and then we're going to pick the finals. So that's going to be made possible by Fotrade, who's building a special content engine just for us. And uh, you upload your images, then you can go vote, one vote per IP. So all of those who are thinking they're going to freep the poll, move on. 
Um, and then we're going to let you vote. And you get to say what you like. Top ten will be looked at by the TWIP cast, and the winners will be picked. But for now, we got the old-fashioned way. Use the Flickr and uh, put it up there by next week, and you could win a uh, special prize. In fact, uh, you, you could win a, a, a prize from Adobe because we have a copy of Lightroom for you. How's that? Um, uh, lots of people joining the forums still. I can't believe it, Aaron, that people continue to join the forums. I thought we would top out, but they keep growing. We're headed toward the six thousand mark at this point. We're over fifty eight hundred in the uh, in the regular Flickr forum, and right under three thousand in our critique forum as well. And another three thousand in the contest forum. So we're up around twelve grand. Excellent, excellent. All right, we did a poll and asked you if you buy lenses only from your camera manufacturer or from third parties. Two thirds of you said only from the camera manufacturer. Tom, jump in. What do you think that means? What was the statistic? I'm sorry. What was the two thirds? Two thirds of our audience said they will only buy lenses from the camera manufacturer. One third of our audience said they don't mind; they'll buy third party lenses. Do you think there's any particular hidden meaning there? No. You know, I actually was really interested to hear the the answer to that question because um, I, I listened to the the poll when it was released last week, and I would have thought actually would have been higher. Uh, I, I feel like most of the photographers I work with that just end up getting the manufacturer brand lenses. Oh, huh, yeah. It, it, I, I'm guessing financial considerations play a part. Uh, definitely, definitely. But I will say that some of the third-party lenses are very good. I, I've tested some of the Tamron lenses in particular, and um, in some cases they perform at or near or maybe just a smidgen above some of the individual copies of uh, various manufacturer lenses. Well, I hate we know- to say it, but I, I think there might be a degree of uh, status around having the manufacturer lenses on your camera and not to say that photographers are gearheads uh, and, and you know, carry around the biggest camera they can hold, um, but th- there might be a little bit of that status-seeking there. What do you think, Aaron? I was about to say that uh, we know people get practically religious about uh, you know, backing a certain camera vendor, particularly the, the Canon and Nikon debates we see all the time. So I wonder if this reflects a little of that as well, if it extends into the lenses. Yeah, I still have to have my armed guard here, Joe Lindsay, to protect me over all the death threats I got because of my switch. He's, he's packing his bazooka over here in the corner in case anybody runs in on me. Um, we do have a new poll, and it's, it's, it's going to no doubt generate lots of controversy and drama, and that's sort of my job here at TWIP. Um, do you think it's wrong to digitally manipulate a photograph using post-processing software? So the answers are yes, anything's cool. Some things are cool as long as you could do it in a wet dark room. I don't care. Start as a photo, just go nuts. I don't uh, mind as long as it's photorealistic. So, you know, it's kind of like... The, the, the people either like it or don't. You'll, you'll have a couple of different choices. Um, I predict that it's going to be mostly people don't mind anymore. This was a more dramatic question, I think, 10 years ago. What do you think, Tom? Yeah, I, I agree. I, people definitely don't seem to mind these days, although I, w- I just wish there was better indication of what status that photograph has when you view it. So is it clearly a photo illustration or is it a photograph? Yeah. At, well, but see, the problem I think with that <laughs> is – who will decide what constitutes a photo illustration? Because I, I, you know, I personally don't do a lot of things to my photos that I didn't do in the film days before there was Photoshop, before there was digital cameras, before there was anything like that. I mean, I spent a long time in wet dark rooms and I retouched negatives with brushes, you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and uh, made eyes look better, you know, right on on the print, and uh, that was accepted practice. Nobody complained about that. And then you know we got Photoshop, and you could do it in a computer. And then all of a sudden, the very same things we were doing with brushes and paints was illegal. I don't get it. 
This is true, and I think it's um, as long as everyone knows what the rules rules are. I mean, yeah. photojournalists have to live by a certain set of rules that their editors define. And yeah, I think photojournalists are the only, in my opinion, that's the only group that should have to worry. Everybody else, hey, if it started in your camera for me. I don't care what you call it or what it is. If it looks good and people like it. I mean, in galleries, people don't buy because of the process. I've never heard a person at any of my gallery shows say, now, I'll only buy this photo if you used Photoshop on it uh, as opposed to Lightroom or Aperture. I mean, you know, no, they don't. They don't care. They just like the picture. Yeah, and it's exciting for photography as an art form. Yeah. You know, uh, we now have all of these tools at our disposal and – I'm just excited to see what the next generation of photographers who grew up solely on digital and never knew the limitations of of, of a wet darkroom. It's it's going to be really exciting. Yeah, I tend to I've tend to get a workflow and when I'm in Photoshop, for instance, that really replicates everything I did in a wet darkroom. And I, you know, I crop, I dodge, I burn. Um, you know, I I do some some contrast masking. I uh, what's it? sharpening. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we used to call sharpening. Uh, and, and, and you know, I, I paint the eyes. That's it. You know, I can do it in about two minutes. So, uh, but but I don't care what people do if they you know, the, there are, there's some cool effects you can get if you know what you're doing with uh, all these programs: Photoshop, Lightroom, Aperture. When the wizards get them, they can fix just about any problem. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, uh, we do have Tom Hogarty from Adobe. Tom, could you give us your official MI6 title over there at uh, San Jose? <laughs> uh, I guess I'm uh, the senior product manager um, for Lightroom, Camera Raw, the plugin for Photoshop, and also the DNG file format. Okay. Well, that's that's quite a mouthful. <laughs> and you have a staff of 300 to help, right? Uh, it's just me and my dog. <laughs> <laughs> so there's no junior product manager? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, let's talk about DNG. Just rather than me try to encapsulate what it is, why don't you why don't you just tell our audience what it is? So, I guess we have to go back a little bit to understand uh, how DNG came about. Uh, as a as a software company um, supporting photographers, we found that basically every year we had new cameras coming out with with different raw file formats, uh, and it was. It was incredible because you could go in and do things that weren't possible with JPEG files uh, after the fact, like fixing the white balance or recovering exposure. Um, And so raw files clearly had a value. But the problem was each camera manufacturer was creating their own type of raw file. And not only that, each specific camera model was generating its own proprietary format. So not only each manufacturer, but each individual camera had its own proprietary file format. And at this point, we're... Lightroom and Camera Raw and uh, the DNG Converter, which I'll get to in a second, actually support more than 200 proprietary raw file formats in just uh, just over a few years of supporting the raw industry. So what what's the problem? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, it's kind of like having 200 different flavors of JPEG and needing to update your software every time you get a new JPEG. Uh, th- that doesn't sound very tenable. Mm-hmm. And since Adobe kind of sits in the center of the industry and we see all of these different formats, we, we can see the patterns and trends. And I think the, the goal was, you know, we, we saw where the technology was going. Let's create a standard um, that everyone can write to and, um, and, and use that as a way as kind of making a common interchange format for the raw files. Now, what do you think about the adoption rate by the industry? How, how comfortable are you with how quickly and how uh, deeply the manufacturers have embraced DNG. 
So there's actually, I mean, if you think about it, there's three constituents of, of the DNG file format. There's the photographers themselves, and they've really embraced DNG. Um, there's software manufacturers, uh, well over 150 software titles support DNG now. Um, and there's camera manufacturers. And if we look at the, the new entrants to the camera market that have just started supporting RAW, um, they've, all, they've all jumped on board with DNG. So Pentax, uh, Ricoh, Samsung. Um, these newer camera manufacturers have realized the benefit of just going ahead and, and using a standard instead of uh, creating their own. Um, obviously, uh, the, the the two elephants in the room, Canon and Nikon, while while they don't support DNG now, I, I think their files are you know well represented in the DNG format. So let's take that last statement and and, and <laughs> dig in there a little bit because that's I'm sorry that sounded a little bit like your PR department. Let's let's. If I'm a Canon or a Nikon shooter, and and uh, you know th- we we know that that Canon has its own RAW format and Nikon has its own RAW format. Let's start with the Nikon format because anybody that's been paying attention to this knows that Nikon has been a little less willing than most manufacturers to share all of its data when it comes to RAW files. In fact, you know they sell a product to you know do the encoding and unencoding of raw files and uh, many of us speculate that they don't want to particularly play with dng or too many other folks because it will eat into the sales of, of capture and x so is that uh, well i mean they're selling the product to anyone who doesn't have a d3 or d300 they're giving it away to anyone who owns those cameras well they're giving the old version away. i just bought a d3 just bought it comes with the old version oh, you got to pay a hundred bucks for the new version well, i would hope they would fix that they aren't going to fix it they aren't no Ooh, i've received no feedback from them when i said um folks uh just bought a five thousand dollar camera from you and uh what's up so no, no response <laughs> but in any event they, they do they do in a very broad way sell that product and and neither of those cameras were available when the dng standard came out Correct. And they were not they were not giving their product away to anybody for free at that point. And once again, the speculation in the market is it's not in their interest to support DNG because it will cut into sales of Capture NX. Now we understand for a fact that they withheld some data that you could only get certain data out of them, and some of it was proprietary, and they didn't want to let go of it. I, I understand that there's been some sort of agreement that's mitigated that. Is that correct? Uh, absolutely. We, we've had a pretty good relationship with Nikon, and um, I, there was a little bit of a white balance issue with a couple, couple camera models, and I, I consider that more of a technical glitch than okay. a, a desire to protect proprietary information. Are they, are they cooperating fully? The same to the same degree that every other manufacturer is. Yeah, we have an excellent dialogue with Nikon. And what about Canon? It's, uh, the same. Okay. So, what would? I'm sorry, it's my job, Tom. What would it? Uh, what would you like to see Canon and Nikon do better with regard to DNG? Well, you know, I would love to see native DNG output out of the Nikon and Canon cameras, but I completely understand their point of view. At the at the, you know, right now at this point in time. DNG is a specification that is maintained by Adobe. So it's, it's open, uh, it's publicly documented, but we actually, if we need to make a change to it, it's our responsibility and we'll take care of it. So I understand from Nikon and Canon's point of view that they might not want to hitch their cameras to something that's maintained by Adobe, which is why we think we've matured the, the format to the point where we can turn it over to a standards body and they would feel more comfortable hitching their wagon to a standard. Now, see, I think that 
would be earth-shattering news if if Adobe were to truly make this open source to the degree that they let go of it. Uh, absolutely. I mean, we'd love to. We would always have input as to you know the future of the format once it's in a standards body. But um, well, I, so I, and so would everybody else. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that would, to me that would be brilliant. Uh, that would be helpful. Uh, that would eliminate any of the uh, cynics' uh, arguments that uh, Adobe somehow trying to profit from this, uh, and it would actually be solving a problem. I, I absolutely agree. And you know, it's interesting. Adobe's kind of uh, made a habit out of creating standards. If you look at PDF Archive, we actually maintain the TIFF standard as well. So um, it's you know, it's kind of a logical place for us to be, and and you know, it doesn't happen overnight. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, to me, if we could get that final step, there'd be no I, – I wouldn't think any argument against it would be valid because it clearly is going to be a problem. Now, those of us with gray hair, i.e. moi, uh, I have data on five and a quarter inch floppy disk, which I'm still like trying to figure out how to get off. Uh, you know, formats change, distribution models and methods change. Um, you know, maybe 10, 15, 20 years from now, we'll be dealing with holographic data. Yeah, and absolutely. people will look at disk drives and go, hard, hard, what's a hard disk? What are you, what are you talking <laughs> about? Um, and, and, and likewise, now, I realize this is, you know, a little bit of hyperbole, but, um, you know, there was the possibility that the GIF standard was going to be held hostage. The fellow that owned the uh, patent to it sued CompuServe over it, which started an awful lot of conversation about, you know, hey, zillions of people are using that uh, file format, and what happens if that ends up getting held hostage? So these questions are all interesting. Some of them are just, you know, just mind games, but some of them have real ramifications for somebody that's starting now, for instance, and looking to build a career and build four or 500,000 images over their lifetime and making sure. <laughs> now, now, one of the arguments, frankly, that I early on had against TIFF was that if Adobe's maintaining it, it seemed, seemed unnecessary because Adobe has kept a promise that they made when they released Photoshop 1, which is constant backward compatibility. And I thought if they're going to maintain that promise and keep that promise and they continue to do that as they have, then what will be the problem? I mean, if Adobe's viable as a company, then my Photoshop files are always going to open up. Well, I guess – and you know, I hate to say this as an Adobe employee, but the, the key phrase in that sentence is as long as Adobe's viable as a company. Right, right, um, right. And I think if you, you, know, you look at the Kodak Photo CD file format, you're like, oh, well, Kodak, come on, they're a titan. They'll always be around. They'll always be a leader in this space. Um, and, and yet they, they seem to have turned away from the pros to some extent, and they've dropped photo CD support. Yeah. I, and by the way, um, everybody in the room, raise your hand that has hundreds of photo CDs. Uh, I have hundreds of photo CDs. I wish I didn't. So actually, I, I need to do a blog post on that topic because uh, as of Photoshop, uh, whatever the next version we release, I, I don't think I'm allowed to say the name of it, even though I think we can all count. Um, but you don't ever use the numbers now. <laughs> <laughs> we use numbers and letters. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, I, I use the old numbering system. So the next one will be 11. I can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> but as of that next version, uh, we won't be able to support uh, the photo CD format. You won't so, be able to. Uh, because of the technology that's supplied by Kodak uh, isn't migrating to the new platform. So um, it'll be interesting. I, I need to do a post to recommend that everyone Switch migrate out. right now. I mean, even as it is, if you're a Mac user, you can only use the photo CD plugin uh, running Photoshop under Rosetta. Yeah, I know. Yeah, it, 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 I did get them all converted. Um, very time consuming. 
Um, but but in general, I mean, this is this is the argument for Adobe releasing the spec because then once again it's not necessary if adobe's viable as a company because you're you're you know you're going to be able to open tiff and psd and jpeg files in adobe photoshop as long as adobe photoshop is for sale right that that's likely conclusion yeah um so what do you need dng for well you need dng in case adobe goes away and dng is in adobe stable then you didn't get yourself anything you didn't buy yourself anything you just had another thing you have to convert yep now, what doesn't convert is the question I get most of the time, Tom, when people talk to me about DNG, and we get a lot of questions at the show about it. What doesn't convert when you when you go into DNG and you save your stuff as DNG? What, are you giving anything up? So, you know, not from my perspective. Uh, and technically, I suppose there is a possibility that um, there could be a, a little chunk of metadata that a camera manufacturer were to hide in a specific place that we could miss. Um, if you don't miss it now, are you going to miss it in 50 years? Probably not. Aaron, you got any questions for Tom? i got a couple of technical questions. Um, actually, in reaction to the last uh, uh, answer you had there about anything that could be missed, uh, would the embedding the original raw file option in DNG kind of be your safety net there in that case? Or? Uh, absolutely. So there's a couple of ways you can convert a raw file uh, to a proprietary raw file to a DNG raw file. And one of them is just to go ahead and, and take all that information in the file, which is typically uh, a preview uh, which is what you see on the back of the LCD, metadata that describes all the sensor information and the sensor information itself. And all we're doing is repackaging it uh, to, sit, to sit in a file in a standardized format so any software developer can go and say, well, I need this piece of information. This is where I look for it. So that's the standard way of converting. You can also go ahead and just repackage and uh, create a DNG standardized file and also include the proprietary file itself in that file. You, you're, you're ballooning your file size quite a bit at that point. Do, do you reinterpret any of the metadata in the process of standardizing it, or do you literally carry it over? I mean, literally, the fields are carried over exactly as is to corresponding uh, elements in the DNG? Or? Literally just carried over. Okay. And one other question I had, too, was if you could comment a little bit about the uh, image conversion methods of preserve raw image versus, uh, I believe, linear uh, convert to linear, uh, what kind of impact does that have? So that, that's if you convert to linear, that's going to make it a bigger file. So mm-hmm. when, when we talk about raw files, we're, we're talking about uh, predominantly uh, images that have been captured uh, with the sensor that stores the uh, information as a, uh, a bare mosaic uh, mm-hmm. pattern. And when you convert that mosaic information, which is just one channel, it's essentially grayscale, but each uh, individual location represents a red, green, or blue pixel. When you convert that to linear, you're actually expanding it uh, to all three channels. Now, the, the key difference is you've gone through the demosaic process, but you haven't tone mapped the, mm-hmm. the data itself. So you still have flexibility in the white balance. Uh, you still have flexibility in the exposure recovery. You still have all the latitude of a raw file. You've just gone through the demosaic process. Makes sense. Excellent. Thank you. Well, um, what question, Tom, have I not asked you that I should have asked you? Well, it's it's interesting, Scott. I mean, everyone, uh, when they talk about DNG, the first thing they think of is the archival nature and the, and the fact that, you know, I, I want to be able to see my images in 50, 60, 70 years. But what they uh, fail to realize is that there's really quite a bit of short-term benefits uh, or near-term benefits if you if you adopt the DNG format. And, you know, the, the top three for me have always been, you know, because we have the horsepower of the computer at our disposal when we convert to DNG, we can actually apply, apply a much more aggressive lossless compression algorithm to the image data. 
So I had a, a folder of uh, D3 files that I converted to from NEF to DNG, and I, I basically cut that folder size in half um, because we were able to use um, uh, better compression algorithms that are available in the camera uh, itself. Uh, the other benefit is the fact that we no longer have to deal with these uh, sidecar files that store image settings. Since most applications never want to write information back into a file format that they don't own or maintain, they write a little sidecar file, and Adobe calls these the XMP sidecars. Benefit of DNG is it's a, it's a known entity, so we can write all that information back into the file. Uh, yeah, a huge is, reduction of clutter there. <laughs> and, and, and and was that that wasn't available in the first DNG spec, was it? Oh no, that's that's always been one of the. Oh really? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, because see that that that's the thing that I guess maybe you all didn't communicate well enough, or that I didn't find out till about halfway into the DNG cycle that that was one of the opportunities uh, you know you could take advantage of. And, and for me, that's what actually sold me on DNG was the ability to to get rid of those sidecar files because they're just a pain in the butt. <laughs> I, I agree, and it's um, you know it's it's true. Maybe we didn't do as good a job as we could have. Um, selling the format, but that that feels awkward to me. It's not something we're making money off of. Sure, we save money for every camera manufacturer that adopts uh, DNG as a format because we no longer need to go through the process of, of, you know, releasing a new version of camera to support it. Um, But it's, you know, it's it's really a soft sell. Uh, Yeah. Well, uh, we should point out that, um, you know, DNG is free. You're not charging anything for it. Nope. And how do people uh, – I know the answer to this question, but for the audience members that don't because we have various levels of skill in our audience from very, very experienced down to brand new, just got my camera today people. How do people take advantage of DNG? Well, I would say um, the first step would just be to go to Adobe's website. Uh, it's adobe.com slash DNG. And just kind of read through the, our thoughts on the topic and, and see the status of the, the format. Um, the next thing, if you happen to use an, a non-Adobe product for your, your raw files, you can download the free DNG converter. And that's a nice little standalone free application that we update regularly. Um, and you can just go ahead and pick all your folder of proprietary files and convert them to DNGs. Uh, that, that's a pretty fast little uh, tool we have. If you, if you happen to work in, a, in an Adobe workflow like Lightroom, um, we actually built in all the DNG conversion utilities within within the application. So I'm an instant gratification guy. I import. I, I look at my proprietary <laughs> files. Um, and then at the end of the day when I'm going to sleep, I just select all and convert them to DNG and let it happen overnight. Hey, Tom, I have one other question, if you don't mind, um, in reference. And I hope this doesn't get too much outside the scope of uh, your discussion of DNG, but uh, you're pointing out that a lot of people do think of DNG in terms of an archival format and looking at your images in 50, 60 years. Do you have any thoughts, though, on what the storage techniques are going to be? I mean, I'm less concerned about DNG being readable in 50 or 60 years than the media that I'm storing them on, you know, as far as archiving and carrying my images forward. That, that's, that's a really good question. I, I think that's one of the most pressing questions. Uh, the only thing we do know is that it's going to be different than what we have now. Uh, mm-hmm. And so I, I think, you know, from my personal philosophy is keep it mobile and keep it ready to migrate uh, the next time it, we switch formats. Well, in the event that Photoshop Express ever has a pro version and there's uploadable storage, et cetera, those will be kind of things that I – it seems to me that Adobe might be positioning, uh, you know, that maybe, you, you know, the format uh, that you carry it around in wouldn't be as important if you put it up online. But obviously well, that, right now the file size limits and, the you know, the, the, the JPEG limits, et cetera, that, that wouldn't be possible. Yeah, the um, – 
using the cloud or the online for storage is definitely, I think, something that we'll see improve once bandwidth improves. Yeah, and bandwidth is going to improve at a remarkable rate. This yeah. is the thing people don't realize because, you know, 10, 12 years ago, when people had you know three hundred baud modems, <laughs> we we paid twenty five thousand dollars a month uh, to access the kind of bandwidth folks now get with Comcast at forty four dollars a month. So that that's a serious metric that's easy to check on, and and I think we'll see that again. I think ten to twelve years from now we'll see an OC ninety two that you can buy for hundred bucks a month. You know, I just get a little nervous about when they start charging me for bandwidth and not just uh, full connection. Yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah, there's gonna there, wherever there's a technology, there's gonna be a scam. <laughs> well, Tom, thank you for coming on the show, uh, representing Adobe. We're gonna ask you to sit there now and uh, take off your Adobe hat and put on your "I'm a photographer" hat. Because for those in our audience who don't know, Tom has uh, worked as a photographer. So we're gonna get to your favorite part of the show, according to what you tell me, which is the listener question. You guys are ready to go? I'm ready to go. First question comes from I don't know who. Um, it comes from Steve, and it is, Hi, guys. Could you please comment on the ways to make use of a tripod as it applies to capturing animals and birds in the wild? I use a Gitzo carbon fiber tripod with a bogan head and a Gitzo quick-release plate on the camera. While in South America, I had many opportunities to photograph wildlife, but found the tripod ball head very awkward and difficult to go from horizontal to vertical without changing framing in the camera. Well, I'm going to take a stab at that. Yeah, since I that sounds like you, Scott. <laughs> Ten years as a wildlife photographer. Um, there's a couple different tools. First of all, you know, when you're going to do wildlife, you're typically going to have a long lens, which means you're going to have a lens collar, which means you just need to rotate the lens within the lens collar. You don't need to take the camera off the tripod, remount vertical and horizontal. Number two, there is a wonderful little device called a gimbal head. There's a company named Wimberly that makes them exclusively. Um, it, it's, it's an amazing tool that allows you to put a machine gun turret on top of your tripod. That's the way I describe it. You just you put the Wimberly head on there, you mount your camera to this head, and then even with like a 600-millimeter F4IS on my old Canon, I could move the thing around with my pinky. I could position it horizontally, vertically, hold it wherever it was without any pressure on me whatsoever, and I could follow moving animals very quickly, and it would just sort of work like a machine gun turret. You could move on your target and just pan with them. Uh, they're not inexpensive, you know, three, four, five hundred dollars But if you want to get serious about wildlife photography, and it sounds like you do if you've spent the money for a Gitzo uh, carbon fiber tripod, uh, take a look at a gimbal head. Uh, did I miss anything, guys? So it sounds like a good investment. Is there anything, uh, you know, body proprietary about that purchase? I mean, if he buys that and, and continues to upgrade his cameras or makes an icon switch like you did, is he, uh, is he out anything? Uh, that's one of the few pieces of gear I got to keep when I made my Nikon switch. There's no... <laughs> doesn't matter what camera you put on it's completely camera agnostic i heard your old nike your, your old canon reference a moment ago <laughs> yeah 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 well that's only because i haven't had any time on the wimberley with the new two to four hundred but uh it, it's coming uh, september 4th i'm going to be out there in alaska with the bears so um, let's move on to the next question dan rodriguez wants to know more about AI servo, AI focus, and spot metering on his 30D. Would either of you like to try this? I'd be glad to take that one. Okay. Um, the default mode on your camera um, 
Don or Dan actually is uh, is what's called one shot AF. Um, that's the way most of the cameras will will again default, and uh, that's where your half press on your shutter will lock your focus at that point. So when you're composing a shot and you lock focus, if your subject continues to move towards you before you release the shutter, you may lose focus there. Um, what AI Servo does is that it tracks the motion of the object. It actually watches the object you're focusing on, and you'll you'll hear the servos in your uh, in your lens making little noises as it it begins to make little focus shifts as the object moves and it actually predicts the focus so by the time the shutter opens because the object may move more between when you press and when the shutter is fully open uh, so it'll actually predict where it's supposed to be and uh, and get a nice sharp focus at least that's the theory um, what AI focus does is it kind of splits the difference between the two it leaves your camera in the one shot mode with most of the objects but if it senses that an object you're looking at is moving rapidly it will then kick into the AI servo mode on its own and begin tracking. Um, as far as spot metering goes, that's actually a, a different thing altogether. It has to do more with the metering process or you know evaluation of light. Um, on the earlier Canons, like the 20D, the best they could do is what's called a center weight uh, metering, which uses more than half of the, of the entire image to kind of average what the light looks toward the center of the image versus a true spot meter, which the 30D has. And that's only 3.5% of the image. It's just a little circle at 3.5% of the entire image you're looking at that it's using to evaluate the light. So if you're wanting to compose your shot and and set the entire exposure around a very, very bright spot that's in the image, you would focus on that point and do a half press in spot reading or mode, spot metering mode to read that area and then recompose your shot. And the shot will be based on with the emphasis on that really, really tiny bright spot that you're looking at. So it's covered okay from your experience, Scott? It does. Tom, do you have anything to add? No, I don't. I'm I'm a little embarrassed. I was I was listening to that uh focus question quite closely because i'm i'm primarily a manual focus guy oh that's okay i i you're much younger than me that's why you're a manual focus guy as soon as you become my age you'll just live with autofocus i'll mention one other quick thing about that too is that the servo and focus modes that that do the very rapid live focusing uh, again you'll you'll hear your lens hopping around a lot if it's a fast moving object in my experience that works best with canon's uh, ultrasonic lenses or with sigma's hypersonic lenses so the ones with a really quiet really fast focusing mechanisms and for a while I had a Sigma lens that had what their older uh, DC style motor in it which is much slower focusing and that won't necessarily keep up as well in the process so there is you know a little bit of the quality of the lens is going to have an emphasis on how that function works and it's going to work best with objects that are moving toward you very rapidly rather than parallel to you as well if that's of any use to you to know <laughs> well I have a question here I think Tom can help with um, this is from listener Mark Wilson he says, uh, I recently switched to shooting my landscape photos in RAW. Good, good choice. But when I open them up in CS3, I'm totally confused as to what would be the best options to take. Could you spend some time talking about um, RAW workflow in CS3, please? Uh, absolutely. So <clears throat> I, I applaud your, your decision to switch over to RAW. I think you'll, you'll find you'll be able to get a lot more out of your images um, I, I heard you talking about RAW with Michael Allen a, a while back, and you know, going from 8-bit to 16-bit and having the full gamut of the Profoto color space is a is a great leap. Um, the workflow is actually, you know, it's tough to describe uh, just by voice, but right. you know, when you open, uh, I would use Bridge in CS3 as a quick way to to view those RAW files. And I actually, I before I even open up Photoshop, I just um, I right click or um, 
use Command or Control R to open a, a set of files in the Camera Raw dialog. Uh, and what you'll see is it's a pretty self-contained little experience where you have a, uh, a row of images or a column on the left-hand side, um, and then you'll have all the controls and a, a viewing window for the image in the center. Uh, and it's, it's actually quite logical. It goes um, from the top left across and then from top to bottom on the right-hand panel. And it's been designed very specifically so that you kind of use those tools in order, and, and that's generally the best way to start working with your image. Yeah, I'd like to chip in there and say that whether it's um, Lightroom, Photoshop, Aperture, I've noticed that all these programs uh, seem to have a layout that favors sort of doing them in the order that the tools are presented. And that, that's usually a good place to start. Yeah, absolutely. I think we've learned if you if you look at the, the Photoshop interface, which they're now continually improving, you know, where do you start? Yeah. <laughs> and providing a little guidance with the layout, I think, in, in both uh, camera and Lightroom is, is really important. Yeah, there's there's a um, – they call them bricks and aperture. I'm not sure what they call them and if they use the same terminology in, in Photoshop or in Lightroom. But Palettes or panels. Pal- yeah. yeah. But I, I actually just by accident – you know, because I started using Photoshop before there were any books or any training <laughs> or any classes or any videos. Uh, you know, I was uh, back in 1.0 days and, and, you know, figuring stuff out. As things have progressed, and really it was version 5 where I feel like photographers started to actually get some some love from Adobe, even though the name photo has been in Photoshop <laughs> for a long time. It, everything seemed to have been moving that way. And then when you know the ACR came out, the the Adobe Camera Raw um, converter. Then it was very clear to me that that was the best workflow, and uh, and I, I think that that set a, a good tone, and that everybody seems to be following that. So there's it's impossible to give a formula. Everybody wants us to give them a formula for how to make their images perfect. <laughs> and if I had that, I'd be selling it for nine ninety five <laughs> right here on the front page of the blog. But I can tell you that it's always safe to just start in that basic left-to-right, top-to-bottom order and and get going. The one thing I generally recommend to people is uh, hold off on sharpening until you know what you're going to do with your image. Uh, Sharpen last and don't sharpen until you're ready to output because you're going to definitely need different sharpening for a 400-pixel wide JPEG you're going to put on the web and a 40-inch print you're going to hang in a gallery. And if you do the sharpening and embed that in the image... And then later you need to resize it or, or do something else with it. You're, you're going to see some image degradation. I actually think that that's a really interesting uh, point, although we're, we're changing it a little bit. Uh, well, you're talking about the raw part. Now, the raw part, you're doing some sharpening in the raw. We're actually now doing two kinds of sharpening in raw. If you, yeah. if you write down sharpening, it's three different kinds. There's capture sharpening, which corrects for the, the sensor softness. There's content sharpening, which is very subjective, make right. it look good to you. And then there's output sharpening based on whatever medium you're going to. Mm-hmm. And I, I, you know, photographers have been very reticent to use some of the new sharpening tools in Camera Raw and Lightroom because of that old adage, don't sharpen until you're ready to output. Mm-hmm. But I, I think we've kind of segmented those areas of sharpening to the point where you can feel comfortable doing subjective or content sharpening in the raw workflow. Yeah, well, that, that's, that's interesting. I, uh, I haven't done that, so I, I, maybe I should look a little more open-mindedly at that. But I definitely think that output sharpening should be saved for last. And um, it's, you can generally take 10 Photoshop books or 10 Aperture books or 10 Lightroom books or 10 anything books and find 10 different opinions on what's the best way to do things. Just like there's a million different religious and political views, but there's one thing everybody agrees on no matter what ilk thereof, and that's pretty much sharpening should generally be safest to uh, last, particularly with output sharpening. 
And don't um, over sharpen. <laughs> yeah. Oh boy. <laughs> you know, that's that's the that's the camera club conundrum. I call it. <laughs> People bring in the sharpest picture they can find without regard for anything other than its sharpness. You know, no subject that's compelling, no story, composition's terrible, lighting's terrible. By God, it's sharp. Um, that's not good. Uh, let's move on to another question. This is kind of fun answering questions with Tom because you know we get we get a new point of view here. And he's smart, apparently. So he can see sound smart. I mean, that's good enough for me. Um, let's see what we can do here. Um, I'm going to try to. Wants to know why. Uh, this is from John Meat. Okay. M I C H L. Michael. I Actually, he says Michael. it's pronounced Michael. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Wants to know why his Nikon stores JPEGs with the RAWs. And wants Aperture and Lightroom demo assistance. Okay. Well, you, you, we can start, number one, you, you can set in your Nikon camera whether or not JPEGs and RAWs are, are stored together. You, can, you have the option of shooting just RAW images, just JPEG images, or both. And that's in your, in your custom setup menu. So you just want to go in there, and if you don't like that function, you can disable it and just shoot the RAWs. I will say there's, you know, there are certain people who need that function quite you know, uh, quite a lot. For instance, journalists often have to very quickly upload a JPEG to their editor uh, so they can get a yay or nay on a photograph. Is that the one they want for the paper before they get to work on cropping it and getting it ready to go? Having to deal with converting and dealing with the, the bigger, uh, you know, raw files would slow that process down. That's just one example of why you might want to do that. Um, uh, before we answer the second part of your question, which is the Aperture and Lightroom demo assistance, uh, Tom, do you have anything to add to that and how uh, Adobe responds to that sort of thing with the you know, embedded uh, JPEGs in, in RAW? Well, the, the, definitely the, the concept of embedded JPEGs in RAW is, is interesting uh, because uh, you, you kind of – when you look at the back of the camera and you capture an image, you're seeing that embedded JPEG in, in the RAW file. And I think, you know, a lot of photographers kind of key off that image and they get surprised when it changes, when they open up the raw converter because everyone interprets raw data differently. Um, so that's that's actually kind of a, a dilemma for those who are just switching from JPEG to raw. And look, look for news from us shortly on that topic. Okay. We, we love to get news from you. Um, now let's move on to the second part of the question. Can some – can you provide help in demoing Aperture and Lightroom? I have trial versions of both. No experience. Put them through. Assuming they are both products. I'm sorry. I'm reading to myself here. I'm hoping for a list of 10 things to try in each program. Well, you just don't want much, do you, John? Uh, <laughs> I, I'm not sure we can accommodate that last part of your question, but here's what I would suggest that you do to test the two programs. One, do import because you're going to be doing a lot of that. Import images into both and then you know see which, which interface you like best. And do look at the interface. Move around the interface. See which one's more comfortable for you. Um, look at how the tools interact uh, and, and see if, that, if they make sense to you. And then test some output. You know, work on some photos, print them, share them, see if they look the way you expected them to, uh, you know, without regard, of course, for the color management side. And, and you know, it's just it's up to you to do it that way. So that, that would be good. Um, your final question, are there suggestions on what uh, resources would help you decide which to choose? I'm sorry, the best resource is you. You pick, you decide, and you know what? I actually know people using both. 
So it, it, there's no it's there's no rule that says that you know you're a part of one religious de- denomination or another, and they excommunicate you if you happen to use both. So it, it won't hurt you to use both if you want to try them. Uh, you know, everybody knows I'm an aperture guy, but uh, we we have Fred on all the time, who's a Lightroom guy. And of course, I think Tom's a Lightroom guy. Of course, he's <laughs> something to do with senior Lightroom product manager. But you know, it's a, it's and a, I actually, uh, you'd be surprised. I actually do have the power of excommunication. You do, you yes. do. Okay, well, never mind. You can't try aperture because Tom can excommunicate you. Uh, <laughs> um, my actually, let me just add. I, I would um, I would recommend um, giving yourself a uh, a project. Actually, you know, like a whole project, a whole project yeah, where yeah. you you, you want to capture something. You have a, a vision of of what the output's going to be and uh, how you're going to deliver it, whether it's a web or a print, and just go ahead and run that through, run that entire experience. I think that's through. a more articulate way of saying what I just said, Tom. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Use the same images in both for testing, so it's not apples yeah, and oranges. Would, yeah, that would be a good that, apples and oranges. See, you were trying to make a kind of apple joke, weren't you, Aaron? <laughs> we caught you. <laughs> Well, this is kind of in. This is interesting. We have a question here, and by the way, I didn't have time to pre-screen these questions, as I'm sure everybody's aware by now. Uh, so it, it, it wasn't me putting this here because of our guest, but this is good. Um, Todd Jones writes: I consider myself as a get it completely done and move on kind of guy. My question is: Do you guys take your personal photos in RAW and keep them backed up that way? I use Aperture, and it still works with RAW, so you can. Calm down, Tom. Uh, and, and I'm afraid that work I've done to tweak all these raw files could be gone someday in the future because of a new file system, software that no longer supports Pentax raw, etc. Some of the very things we're talking about here today. I can't see myself going back and re-editing raw photos of Uncle What's-His-Name. This guy's got a pretty good sense of humor. He calls his own <laughs> uncle Uncle What's-His-Name. <laughs> so it, it seems like he's asking questions along these same lines. What I basically take the gist of it is do you store – the untouched digital negative someplace separately. What, what about you, Tom? Do you, do you t- store the untouched digital negative separately so that in case there's an issue with this kind of stuff, you can move on it? No, actually, um, I keep all my, my DNG files um, pretty much I- identical uh, to the latest version that I've edited. And the, the one thing about DNG that's nice is, so you, I consider it a job jacket. You basically have the negative, which is all the image data. You've got uh, printing instructions, all the information about how to get to where you you got in terms of exposure and, and tone curve, and then the last piece is actually work print. So in the DNG file, you can store a large JPEG preview um, of what the image looked like at your last settings. Uh, so I know if I if I come across this file in thirty years, the preview I'm going to see, the embedded preview, is going to show me how I wanted that image processed, and then I have all the raw data I can go back to. Well, there you go. What about you, Aaron? Um, well, I'd like to throw in, in relation to that, um, I do a, a decent amount of freelance and contract photography for different groups. All of the recipients of these images are, are usually graphic designers and, and heavy Photoshop users for the most part. I've begun delivering um, JPEG copies to them, which they use kind of for speed. Um, but I also will give them the raw images, but in DNG format. And one of the reasons or the benefits for that is I don't personally like to let an image out until I've done the editing on it, the cropping, the adjustments for it, so it looks the way I I perceive it, you know, 
to look the best, essentially. But I do understand that the designers and all that receive those images may have a completely different interpretation of that image, and, and they've bought the rights to it, so they're certainly uh, you know able to make, make that decision. So I deliver them as DNGs because out of Lightroom because one of the benefits is that it will come up initially to them with my edits in place. I mean, the adjustments I've made, the crops I've made, everything is that way, and that's the way they'll see the image. But with a click of a mouse, they can basically undo all of what I've done and go back to the raw image and completely reinterpret that image the way they like. So to me, it's the best of both worlds for delivery of the image to the client. Okay. Well, there you go. I, I want um, I want to take this next one. It's about uh, rights. Um, Pedro writes, when you get offered money for the rights of one of your pictures, what is exactly, what is it that they want? The raw file? The file after color correction, can I still, for example, participate in competitions like This Week in Photography with that picture? Or should I, after sale, just erase the picture and forget I took it? How much should I charge? Blah. Okay, that's a lot of questions, Pedro. <laughs> uh, bottom line is you license a photograph. You don't sell it. In other words, you own the photograph and the copyright to it. You are licensing someone else the right to use it. So you don't have to throw it away. <laughs> <laughs> Unless your licensing agreement says that you do. And somebody, if you're going to do that, you better get paid a whole big bunch of money because you're saying, I don't ever want to be able to make money off this again. As to what they want, once again, that's a matter of the license. Do they want the raw file? And if you want them to have it, then you know they pay for it, they can get it. Normally, what they're looking for uh, d- depends a whole lot on what kind of use it is. It, some publications demand the raw files and don't want the photographers to do any editing because they often wrongly believe that their editors are better than the photographer. <laughs> Some publications don't know anything about editing a raw file, would just prefer that you send a publication quality TIFF or a CMYK separated TIFF. That's, that's going to be a matter of the purchaser wanting the photo and what they want to do with it. So once again, those are completely negotiable terms, Pedro. There's no rules. You can do whatever you want as long as that's what the client wants and they're willing to pay you and you agree to the fee and then um, you know how much you should charge unfortunately there's this little thing in the United States called antitrust laws so I'm, I, I'm, I'm not allowed to tell you what to charge and what you should charge is this as much as you can get <laughs> there's an old saying here in America that, you know how much is a horse worth well it's worth exactly what the last guy you walked by is willing to pay you for it uh, you know so uh, I charge a lot of money for my photographs but I've been doing this a while you should you know you should investigate what other people are charging, try to get a sense of the marketplace and take a look at what it costs you to make the image. If you spent 50 grand to go to the Galapagos and somebody wants to buy a picture for 10 bucks, it's probably not going to add up. Anybody else want to chime in on that? Well, I would just, um, in terms of the format and the, the licensing and, and how you hand off a file and what you should do with it, uh, there's, a, there's a great group out there. Um, that sponsors a site called the Updig. Um, it's the Universal Photographic Digital Imaging Guidelines, and it's updig.org. And they have a wealth of information uh, on topics like this of how to hand off a file, what format, licensing, etc. There you go. And they're actually, uh, you know, it's a lot of constituents of professional photography associations. So it's oh, good. It's a it's a great resource. I did not know about that. So Aaron, make a note of that. We may have to make that a side of the week. Certainly. <laughs> that, that's uh, that sounds really good. Here's a question. Uh, we have time for listener questions. This almost never happens. <laughs> this is great. Um, we're, we're getting more listener questions answered than we do when we do a listener Q&A show. I think so. How come, <laughs> how come that's happening? Oh, it's probably because it's just the three of us. Um, this is from Damien Keffin. He has a, 
he or she has a question about low light specifically related to shooting people wearing uniforms with highly reflective patches on them. Um, Guys love the podcast, makes the trip to and from work so much more enjoyable. Have a quick question that affects about 60% of my photography. I'm a member of a volunteer rescue organization that um, and uniforms are worn at that contain bright orange reflective stripes. The issue I have is the flashback from the stripes. I can't set up the ISO and lower shutter speed due to the fact that the active photos are very busy people and I can't stand still during a rescue. How can I overcome the reflective tape issue wow um, <laughs> i'm gonna let you try aaron well um this particular question is one i, I kind of dealt with almost by accident um back a number of years ago when my wife and i were getting married and on our honeymoon in france um, i had taken a photo uh in the uh in the underground or in the subway in paris of a couple of police officers um bicycle police officers in france and i kept the shot because it, it was came out kind of neat in the end in its own way, but uh, it totally illustrates what he's talking about. Those bright patches reflect so much light back that the the TTL or ETTL decision-making that the flash systems uh, utilize is completely fooled by it. I mean, it gets back so much light that it thinks that, uh, you know, that there is a tremendous amount of light in the room and it irises down, you know, a a huge amount on the aperture and you end up with this uh, incredibly bright, you know, patches standing out and the whole rest of the picture is is very cable like and like i said the particular shot i had i just thought was kind of neat through that accident but i learned in the process there too that you're probably going to have to uh, to determine those exposures manually in that case uh because Wait the, a minute, you're gonna you're gonna have to do math yep. you're gonna have to think about guide <laughs> numbers you're gonna have to read your manual that came with your flash are you crazy well at the very least do some test shots and just you know kind of muddle your way through it and get a feel for what the settings are because i think that's one scenario where ettl as smart as it is uh in most flash systems is going to be really thrown for a loop in that case and and for those that don't understand ettl when you take a, a picture with a canon or an icon or, or one of the modern cameras using a, a flash like that it's actually firing the flash twice and and it happens so fast you don't realize it but what it's doing is it's firing a test flash evaluating and metering the entire scene with that test light and then determining both the aperture and the shutter speed and all but also how much light needs to come from the flash for the final shot and again to your eye it looks like just one big flash but it's actually two happening very quickly and that first one is what's getting fooled and that iris is down and and uh again i keep saying iris is down which is more of a video term but it it brings the uh the aperture down really low in that case and uh, you end up with this really warped photo so you're, you're probably going to have to do some test shots either turn off the ettl or override it and just kind of find out what light works best in that environment in that case so that, that the system isn't fooled by those patches any uh, anything you'd like to add to that tom Wow. I mean, that's definitely a challenge. I, I, I was just thinking immediately of, of where you could stash some off, um, off-camera strobes somewhere yeah. in the surroundings with enough diffuse light so it wouldn't be yeah. a problem. But. Unfortunately, in an emergency situation, you can't. Would you, everybody please crash here. Yeah. I've got my strobes <laughs> over on that corner. All car crashes should be confined to this 100-yard patch. It is going to be yeah. less of a problem if you're bouncing the flash off a ceiling or, you know, at an angle. Yeah. I mean, my case was a direct flash. And what what he's describing, I suspect he's either using the built-in flash in the camera or he's got his flash pointing straight at the subject because that's what's really going to fool your camera in that situation. I think manual is the only chance you got. Mm-hmm. And, and 
you know, this is why we we have said before, reading your manuals, particularly, you know, not just your camera manual, but your, your accessory manuals like the Flash, which, by the way, is usually a pretty thick manual. There's a lot to those things yeah. these days. And learning how to compute guide numbers manually and learning how to do these things manually may come in handy some days, particularly if you're going to take these kind of challenging situations. And, of course, we've referred to the strobists before. About to make the same suggestion. And, and you know, generally, I've quit trying to learn anything about Flash. I just go over there and then they give me the answer. So it's, uh, <laughs> it's just easier. Go see those guys. They got that figured out really well. So we... Um, well, we got through quite a few listener questions. Thanks for helping out with that, Tom. Oh, my pleasure. And um, coming up next week, we're not sure, but I can tell you coming up in the coming weeks, I, I am in discussions with Canon. Um, they're very high up PR people to have a, a, a discussion with them about having somebody on the show from Canon who will talk about what their service center deals with in terms of calls for help related to uh, single lens reflex uh, cameras and lenses and they get some amusing calls for help on a regular basis as well some serious ones so we're going to have somebody from Canon on to talk about that it'll be of interest to everybody though not just Canon because it's going to address the kinds of questions that people have when it comes to photography gear in general. So that is coming up, and we're working on some other special guests for you, as well as some theme shows. So if you have suggestions about what we should talk about, uh, would really love for you to, to send those in. Now, before we go, though, I would like to um, go to Aaron, who has... Um, some really good news, and that's about our pick of the week. I do want to mention the podcast is sponsored by Audible. If you go to audible.com slash, excuse me, audiblepodcast.com slash TWIP, T-W-I-P, you can get a free downloadable book. That's something we've worked out with Audible uh, just for you. There's no obligation. You you know sign up, go through the process, decide you don't want to do it. You can cancel without penalty. Keep the free book as our gift in theirs. And you can pick any book you want, but Aaron has one he would like you to look at. Uh, this week, I'm going to recommend a book that uh, that I absolutely loved, um, and this is going to be the the first of two picks. Fortunately, because there is a or coming in a future week, because there's a a more recently released book from the same author that kind of goes with this book. Um, but the book this week is going to be The Pillars of the Earth by Ken Follett. Um, it's absolutely fantastic. Uh, novel. I actually read the print version of it uh, when I was in either junior high school or high school, actually. Um, and the book has been printed millions and millions of times around the world. It's been wildly popular. And uh, when his more recent book came out in Audible, I downloaded that and thoroughly enjoyed it and enjoyed it so much that it caused me to go and download uh, the Audible reading of uh, of The Pillars of the Earth and listen to it right afterwards. So uh, it's 40 hours long. Um, people who have heard my picks before know that there's two things that I'm really fond of. That's uh, long, long, unabridged audible books that are fun to listen to and also things that have a, you know, a kind of a historic novel, so to speak, or historical fiction, uh, blending historical uh, situations with uh, with fictional characters in, in a way that doesn't uh, you know violate the history so to speak. Um, this particular book follows the building of the cathedral in uh, in a fictional town of Kingsbridge, England, starting in the middle of the 12th century, and it actually ends up spanning uh, one and a half for two generations worth of characters in here. And, and anyone who knows any of the history of the building of a cathedral, uh, they typically could take hundreds of years and did span multiple generations. So. Uh, fantastic book to say the least uh, beautiful characterization in it um, the reading of it is is tremendous and the same uh, narrator uh, reads this book as reads the one I'm going to suggest in the future so uh, anybody who has read the pillars of the earth which is 
not unlikely because the book's been out about 20 years, I believe, um, would probably thoroughly enjoy revisiting it uh, through this. If you've never heard it before, definitely try it. And if you really do like it, know there's going to be another suggestion I'll have in a couple of weeks' time to follow it up that'll uh, kind of keep you addicted to it. Very good. If you have a suggestion for our Audible Tip of the Week, would you please do us a favor and send it to us at twipphoto at gmail.com. We'd love to hear what you're reading about. People send us email and comments all the time. In fact, we're really sorry we cannot address all of them because there are simply too many to deal with. But we do read them all, and we try to use them to inform our opinion about how the show should go. We know that we're doing a reasonably good job because the subscriptions keep climbing every week, and you keep listening. So to get more feedback from you, uh, just jump on on any of those vehicles. Uh, we also have something set up at Delicious. Uh, how does that work, Aaron? Uh, basically, I'll have a link in the show notes. Or it's, it's in every week's show notes and also linked off of the blog. Um, but Delicious is a really, really easy way for you to, if you're looking at a website, you can put a little bookmark in your system for Delicious that will submit the page you're looking at straight to the uh, to the TWIP Ideas feed on Delicious, which kind of groups them all together where anybody who is a, a TWIP follower can certainly subscribe to that by RSS or can visit that site and, and follow along with those. But it's a great way for you to pool your recommendations for us. And I go through them all week long and, and go through them with a fine-tooth comb, actually, in the hours before the show uh, to get site suggestions and news and other ideas that uh, that come from the TWIP community. Making all of those people associate producers. Absolutely. Well, speaking of the associate producers, uh, we're going to have a first this week. Uh, Every week, we end the show with a tip of the week. And for the first time, the tip of the week does not come from the panel, but from a TWIP listener. And Aaron, I would like you to do the honor to share the tip on behalf of Jared. This comes from Jared. Um, He says, uh, it's a really great idea, actually. Uh, He's a pretty heavy Flickr user, um, has apparently quite a library of Flickr images up there. And uh, according to him, what he finds, and I'll just read from his recommendation here, now that I've got a fairly consistent and growing page view count, I've noticed that my older photos have very low view counts on them. Um, It's time to recycle those old photos by changing the upload date and bringing them to the front of your photo stream. Uh, So he describes it here, and I'll put it in the show notes. Uh, On the photos page, click on edit, and next to taken on the date, click on the date posted tab and edit the date and time to be newer than the other photos in your stream, and that will reorder your photos. So if you do have a tremendous number of photos and you've got quite a viewership, um, you know, your older pictures may be kind of falling off the scale. So his recommendation is a good one. It's an easy way to churn your older images back up to the front and and keep the the newer viewers of your photo stream uh, in touch with what you've been doing. Well, that is, I think it's a pretty cool tip. Mm-hmm. Now, Jared seems to be a very sly guy. So <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll make sure that he can't uh, freep our poll, though. Right. I mean, <laughs> he seems to be figuring this stuff out. I'm just kidding, Jared. Just kidding. I'm just kidding. Don't send me an email. I'm just kidding. Um, thanks for being on the show, everybody. Tom, where can people find out uh, more about you, communicate more with you, find out more what you're into, etc.? So I actually, um, I seem to be the, the primary author on the Lightroom blog, which is blogs.adobe.com slash Lightroom. Uh, so that would probably be the best place. Um, you know, I, I get a lot of email and I read every feature request for Lightroom and, and Camera Raw. So going to adobe.com and submitting stuff that way is the best way to do it. Okay. Aaron, where would you like folks to find you? Um, my blog, which I am straining to keep uh, current enough information on, uh, is halfpress.com, H-A-L-F-P-R-E-S-S.com, or you can find me on Twitter under Halfpress. Okay. 
Well, you can find me on the Twitter at scottborn.com. Go to my blog, scottborn.com, everything scottborn.com. Um, also want to mention, though, uh, you know, um, I'll have my faux trade portfolio up uh, by the time you see the show notes. So you can check me out there, too. It's uh, been fun. Everybody here did a great job. We're looking for Alex to be back next week to help me word through whatever we got to get through to get more <laughs> photography information to you. want to thank our sponsors, Lens Baby and Audible. Lens Babies and Audible have done a great job for us, and without them, we could not uh, be here to support you. Thanks to everybody who listens and writes in. Once again, twipphoto at gmail.com is the blog. You can leave comments there, send us email. Head on over to the Flickr groups. Don't forget to participate in the poll and to link to us so you can get your chance to win a Drobo. That's it. That's all we have time for this week. Time to put the lens cap right back on. <laughs> <laughs>